I am very happy to announce that our benchmark numbers have been revised and updated to 2019 numbers. And uh, a really cool question from somebody who just listened to the last podcast that we put up with Fred Shoemaker last Friday and how that fits into a pre-shot routine. Let's tee it up. Welcome to Data Access Golf, your home for rapid golf improvement. And now, from the thin air of the Rocky Mountains, next on the number one tee, your host, Aaron Stewart. Hey everyone, Aaron Stewart, Data Access Golf, the podcast. Thanks for joining me here again, and thank you so much for your responses to uh, the Fred Shoemaker interviews. It's been really cool. The easiest way to get me is either leave a message on Facebook or Instagram, or on our, our Facebook page or Instagram, or dataaccessgolf at gmail.com. That seems to be where most of our comments are coming in. I have noticed, and I'm doing a much better job of going and looking on YouTube, because we do, the podcast is saved in video format and put on YouTube as well. So I've had to do a better job of going and checking there, but I really appreciate it. Getting tons of followers at dataaccessgolf. Instagram page where we just do like quotes and put up scores and different things that are going on. So a lot of cool things going on at Data Access Golf and it's been really amazing. It's been a fun first season for sure and and obviously next week we're going to jump into the 2019-2020 season. So I'm spending this time sort of revamping some things. We're working on the Facebook group. We're going to sort of relaunch that and kind of have some new ideas on how we can make that a little more helpful to folks. So a lot of cool things going on. We're not wasting our time around here. We're trying to really get ready to make Data Access Golf a much better um, solution all the way around for, for the folks that are listening. It's so nice to have people that are listening and willing to reach out and give suggestions and make comments. Um, a lot of what we did to start with, I, I just was flying from the seat of my pants to start this thing. And so it's fun to have people that have reached out and said, hey, we love this and we don't like this. And so we'll try to revamp. We'll try to do a lot more interviews. That seems to be really what people are interested in. They like to hear from different folks, which I'm not offended. I know I listening to me all the time can't be all that fun. My kids complain about it constantly, so I get it. But anyway, so really cool stuff and so appreciative of all your comments and and following and listening. It's been, it's been a wild ride and I'm really enjoying it. So thank you so much. And... Uh, Going through all these, I will say this, going through all these injuries, which have been, it's been just, I must, I've got the worst luck in the world after being essentially injury free most of my life. I mean, I can't remember not playing golf because I was injured to go through that devastating wrist injury that lasted, man, it was like two and a half years. That thing bothered me. I still got a cyst in there, so it still hurts a little bit, but it's manageable. And then to, to rupture this Achilles. The first week in June was just like, are you kidding me? And uh, continue to have problems with that. So this has been such an outlet to feel like I'm still having some sort of interaction with golf. And, uh, you know, putting, chipping and, and talking to folks about golf has been super helpful and therapeutic. And I just appreciate it. I really appreciate all those that have pitched in and and uh, kept the discussion going, kept the conversation happening. So thank you so much. So yeah, I wanted to talk about the benchmarks, and I'll, I'll do a brief review for folks that are just joining us, but 
the benchmarks was was this concept that I had. It was based on discussions that I had with Fred Shoemaker and other folks that a lot of us get out there and we have really high expectations for our golf games, even when we haven't been playing very often or playing or or, play, or have never played very well. We just expect to hit really good golf shots all the time. And first and foremost, golf is hard. It's got not only hard for us, it's hard for um, professional golfers as well. We're talking about swinging a club, you know, in, in less than two seconds, <clears throat> excuse me, and trying to hit a ball in the middle of it, in the middle of a club face and trying to make it go a certain direction, a certain height, um, a, a, a certain length. And uh, it can be with wind and, and, and different, you know, lies and lofts. And it's crazy the kind of um, expertise we can um, develop in golf, but that we expect in golf without really having much awareness of what's really going on in our own golf games. And so the idea of these benchmarks came from, it used to be a situation where um, I, I would get frustrated with myself and, and then I would look up the PGA Tour averages on like greens and regulation or putts made from 10 feet or whatever it is. And I'd always look at those and be like shocked at how low it was. Because when you watch TV, you just assume they're making everything because that's good TV, but they're not, right? So if you start looking at PGA Tour averages, you start to realize that they're human and that you've got players that are super strong in some areas and players that are weak in other areas. And the ones that are super consistent and super strong are the ones that usually do quite well. Like Rory McIlroy led the tour in strokes gain this year, which is a combination of everything. Um, he was 2.5 something or other. So he picked up 2.5 strokes on, um, on, an, on the average player of that particular day, of that particular tournament, which is uh, amazing. Tiger Woods has averaged over three twice in his career. So that's Rory's goal every year is to get up to that three where he averages three strokes more than everybody else in, in the strokes gain category. And that, that combines strokes gain off the tee, strokes gain approach, strokes gain putting, all of it. So that's, uh, and then it's a really, it's a really great stat because it compares everybody to one another on, on any given day, on any given course. So it's a very appropriate, applicable um, data. So it's really cool. But anyway, so the idea of, the, of developing these benchmarks, and again, I took probably when we left, so I started this podcast last October and it, you know, we kind of had the, the, the remainder of the 2018, 2019 season. And then we went in to November, December when there's really not a lot going on. And then we kick it off again in Hawaii, you know, um, in, on, on Maui at Kapalua. And so there was that time in between there where I didn't, there wasn't a lot of golf being played that was at least domestic. And so I tried to go through and figure out how I could take all these stats from the PG tour and make them applicable to us. Obviously, you know, we amateur golfers who work for a living, who have nine to five jobs are not going to be able to play and practice as much as everybody else. And so what's realistic. And so I went through and basically pulled from the TGA, PGA tour stats, um, a number of statistics and tried to figure out what a good goal would be for us so we could accurately, accurately measure our golf game and then work on those things that are not, quote unquote, these are the air quotes that I talk about, tour quality. 
So it was a way to make sure that we, if we were performing above these benchmarks, we could literally say that we have a tour quality game in driving accuracy, or we have a tour quality game in greens and regulation, sand saves, scrambling, putting. And that that should be good enough, especially as an amateur. So to freak out and get upset on the golf course because you're not performing up to what you believe your standards should be is typically wrong. Most of us have super high expectations for ourselves, which are just ridiculous. So these are basically benchmarks to hopefully help us feel um, we'll get a good, a, a good measuring stick of where our games are hanging out. Okay. So now the benchmarks themselves, these numbers that I came up with, I ran, I crunched a lot of numbers and did a lot of data to try to basically figure out. I wanted to come up with a, a pretty easy number to remember that was right in between the average and like the, and like the bottom third of the PGA Tour pros in any given category. Right. So not the average pro. That seems to be ridiculous for an amateur, but not the worst pro either. I wanted it somewhere in the middle of there. And, and I've been able to do that. Um, some are a little more of a stretch than others, but all of them are pretty dang good, I think. So and so I wanted to go in and take a look at that really quickly and pull them up and kind of go through them with you real, real quick. OK, awesome. So uh, the numbers haven't changed. I went back through and started crunching the numbers and I was, these benchmarks are within 1% of what they were last year. And these are actually a little more stringent than they would have been had I gone with the 2019 numbers. So I'm just going to leave them alone. And uh, so what I'll do is kind of go through what the numbers are. And these numbers are tied into the app. I know I've been talking about that. I cannot believe how long an app takes to produce. It's ridiculous. But um, now I've got this off-season to figure it out. But these are the benchmarks that will be in the app. I know there's some of you that have, and I really appreciate those that sent in their numbers. How cool to see. I mean, we had folks that, we've got basically six numbers here that we look at. There was folks, I would say the average of the Data Access Golf listener had like th three and a half of the six were tour quality. Right. And I just thought that was amazing. And then the other, you know, three they were working on two and a half or three they were working on. They were working on the parts of their game that were weakest. And so that was very gratifying. So thank you to those that sent those in. I appreciate it very much. And those that kept track. I mean, it wasn't easy. You were keeping track on. Um, it looked like most of you are keeping track on uh, pages on an iPhone, which was easy to share with me. So. Thank you very much. Okay, so the numbers haven't changed much, but the folks that performed below these numbers for 2019 have changed <laughs> drastically. And it's been pretty interesting um, to see. What was super fun about going through is you can see the play the players are looking at these benchmarks because a, you will, a lot of the players, there's only one player who's still in the same category. He, he's, he's always in this category. But all the other players had worked hard to get themselves out of these categories, and most of them did. Um, that they had become strong in this area they were weak in, and then if they're on the list, they had become weak, they had become weak in another area. So it was super fascinating to see how that all adjusted. Um, but anyway, let's go through these really quick. So driving accuracy. So the benchmark for 2019-2020 will remain 55%. 
and those that performed less than hitting less than 55% of the fairways in 2019 were Jordan Spieth, Phil Mickelson, and Peter Uline. Okay, so just to give, this is just to give you some, some, um, I guess, reference into what we're talking about. If, if you're hitting 55, more than 55% of your fairways, you are hitting more fairways than these players did. That, that what gives us the ability to use the air quotes and say tour quality. Okay. So that's how we use those. Okay. Greens and regulation is 65%, right? So driving accuracy, 55%. Greens and regulation, 65%. So we're going to be able to hit some greens from, you know, not the fairway, right? We're going to be able to do that sometimes. And those that hit less than 65% of the green, of their greens and regulation for the 2019 season, Included Brant Snedeker, Justin Rose. Can you believe that? Justin Rose, the great Justin Rose, hit less than 65% of his greens in regulation, and Francesco Molinari, former Masters champion. Okay, cool. So we got 55 driving accuracy, 65% um, greens in regulation, and then sand saves, we have as a benchmark 45%. So we want to get up and down out of the sand out of the sand at least 45% of the time. PGA Tour pros who averaged less than 45%. Paul Casey, Keegan Bradley, and Jonathan Vegas, who had a, who started coming on there at the end of the year. Okay? So I've always considered uh, Paul Casey and Keegan Bradley to be good sand players. So this was kind of shocking to me. So that's 45%. Okay? So now we've got driving accuracy, 55%. We've got Greens and regulation, 65%. We've got sand saves, 45%. 55, 65, 45. Trying to keep these super easy to remember. Okay, scrambling. Scrambling numbers. All right, <clears throat> this was, yeah. So scrambling numbers, are it's 55%. So we want to be able to get up and down around the green 55% of the time, not including the sand. And those that performed less than this, are Phil Mickelson, Jason Duffner, and Hunter Mahan. And we both, we know that Justin, J Jason Duffner and Hunter Mahan struggled a little bit this year. Phil actually won a tournament, but then struggled towards the end of the year. This was one of the areas that they struggled in. Okay. So up and down 55%. So now we've got 55, 65, 45 for driving accuracy, G greens of regulation and sand saves, and then 55% again for scrambling. Okay. So those are, the, basically, the, the main course stats that we keep track of to see if our games are holding up to these tour quality benchmarks. All right. Now, putting is something that we made a big change to midstream, the whole strategy of putting. If you remember, at the first of the year, I would track 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 footers. Well, this whole concept came to me by, it came to me and I was looking at the, the numbers of putters and people that did really well when they won and they were making obscene numbers of five footers and in. Like if you made five footers and in, you were in super good shape in any given tournament. And so I started to think about that and said, okay, look, we're amateurs. We're trying to save time. We're trying to practice on the things that are most important. It's a five footer. Five feet and in is where we should spend the bulk of our time working on our game, our putting game. And then we should try when we go out and say for the last 10% work on our lag putts, those should be, we should be just trying to get within a 10 foot circle of the hole because that gives us a five footer and in. 
So if we're super, super good on our five footers, then it takes pressure off our lag game. It takes pressure off our sand game. It takes pressure off our around the green game, our scrambling game. So just spend all your time. And I know it's not very much. I mean, we just don't have a whole lot of time. But, but when you have time to putt, work on the five footers. You want that, you want that hole to look like a, you know, a garbage can. That a five footer is a total joke to you. No pressure, no nothing, because you've made a million of these things and five footers are easy. Now, are five footers nerve wracking out on the, out on the course? If they are, we're not practicing five footers enough. That's an excellent way to feel. That's an excellent way to tell how you are feeling over five footers. Um, our benchmark for five footers is 80%. And those that made less than 80% of their five footers in 2019, Gary Woodland, U.S. Open winner, right? Uh, Tommy Fleetwood, come on, right? I mean, he was amazing. And then Tony Finau, which Tony Finau was less than 45% in sand the previous year. He's one that actually was, did better in sand and then struggled a little bit from his five footers. But man, if you can make more then I was looking at like um, Rory McIlroy, when he won the Tour Championship in Atlanta, he made 93% of his five-footers. Okay, 93%. So I've got the benchmark here at 80%, and that's really just to say that you've got a tour-quality game. But if you if we got ourselves up to where we could make 90-plus percent of our five-footers, you would see a drastic difference in your game. You would take so much pressure off the rest of your game, your approach shots, your scrambling, everything. You would take so much pressure off the rest of your game, you would just perform better. So that's why we made the adjustment to five-footers. So now we just look at five-footers when it comes to putting, and then we look at putts per round. Okay, so five-footers, we should be making 80% or above. And I mentioned those who made less, Gary Woodland, Tommy Fleetwood, and Tony Finau. And then the last benchmark number we have are putts per round. Originally had it at 30, and that seemed to be a number. That's a number that I always kind of hung out with and, and tried to, to, to beat, but that was a really easy number for most of the pros to beat. So I dropped it just a half a stroke to 29.5. Still, most pros will beat that number, but I think for us, we should be able to break that easily if we're super good on our five-footers. Uh, those that made... Um, those that had a higher average than 29 and a half putts per round were Brandon Grace, Bubba Watson, and Corey Connors, right? Corey won on, on tour last year. So those are the benchmark numbers. They are the same for this year as they were last year, and they are actually just a slight bit harder based on the numbers this year. So you've got uh, 55% for driving accuracy. You want to hit 55% of your fairways. You want to hit 65% of your greens. In regulation, you want to get up and down out of the sand 45% of the time. You want to get up and down around the green, excluding the sand trap 55% of the time. You want to make more than 80% of your five footers, and you want to average less than 29.5 putts per round. And those are our benchmarks going into the 2019 2020 season. Those are the numbers that will be on the app that will come out. It's done, it's designed, it's over. It's actually with the programmers. Uh, we had to make a few adjustments because a few adjustments to the, there's a part of the app that I'm super proud of where it will tell you if you're playing the right tees based on which clubs, which club you're using as your approach shot. Um, that was kind of messing the programmers up, but we figured out a way around that. So it's going to be really cool and it's going to be super helpful. So, all right. Um, so 
Now to move quickly into the pre-shot routine. So the question that came in, and I, again, I, I really appreciate this so very much, that actually, you know what? Maybe we won't do the pre-shot routine. It looks like we're already into this thing. Quite a few minutes. Wow, I can't believe we talked that much. Um, no, it's not too bad. Um, anyway, so I'll go, I'll go with the pre-shot routine. If, if you need to stop it now and come back and listen to it later, please do so. I don't want to take up too much of your time. But so the pre-shot routine, the, the last little episode that we had with Fred Shoemaker, he really got in to the deep stuff of what he's talking about. And it's about um, making sure that we, are, that we are trying to be aware of what we're really doing and what we really should be doing. And what we should be doing is what's natural to us, what we feel when we propel an object. In, in this case, in Fred Shoemaker's case, he has his throw golf club. And, and then trying to compare the two and, and really using my take on it and how I've always looked at this is really making sure that what we're doing, what our golf swing is now, that we really get to a place where we understand what we're doing there, that it's accurate. And then we compare it to what our natural motion is. And then Fred talked about, you know, just trying to figure out what the differences are between the two, being aware of that, not trying to control anything, but just simply being an observer to what's the difference between what you're doing and what you really should be doing because that's the natural you. Well, then when it comes to a pre-shot routine, um, somebody said, how does that, somebody asked me, and again, uh, his name was Corey, somebody asked me um, how that affects a pre-shot routine and if that should affect a pre-shot routine. And I would say yes. I mean, there are many folks out there that go through a pre-shot routine trying to remember something that they did previously and trying to live in the past and produce a future that is at least as good as the past, if not better. And that is a, a very horrible way to try to swing the golf club because there's no such thing as muscle memory. There's no such thing as, um, as being the exact same today as you were months ago when you happened to make this particular shot. That feeling, that motion, that movement is not going to feel the same the day, today as it did three months ago. And sometimes we chase feels and we talk about real feels and fake feels a lot here on Data Access Golf. And, and that's where the problem comes in, is that we're chasing a feel that was, um, we may not even be remembering what that felt like, ac felt like, like accurately because we may have had a, tack, a tight back, a tight hamstring, um, our tempo may have been off a little bit and we just happened to catch one on the screws, whatever. Um, but we cannot be exactly who we were in the past. We're creating a future. So sometimes when we go into a pre-shot routine and we try to remember, right, and make ourselves do certain things, we're trying to remember the stuff that our coaches have told us that we need to do in every single swing. We are trying to remember and then recreate something that's where a pre-shot routine is a disaster. Um, is it better than having nothing at all? Not if it's being used that way. I think a pre-shot routine can actually hurt your game because we're trying to create something new with the body and the situation that we have currently and the feels that we have currently. And I've mentioned a number of times that that, that epiphany was huge for me when I realized that I could swing one way one night and go home at midnight with technology with the swing bite strapped on and get all my lines lined up and have a really, really on plane, good golf swing. 
go home, come back the next morning, five hours later, get warmed up, put the exact same fill on a golf swing and look at the data and go, oh my gosh, my swing's not even close to being similar. And a lot of you, that'll freak out. But to me, and I freaked out a little bit too, I gotta be honest, I, I thought that I had something and then you just can't have it, right? So anyway, so I went back to, um, so going back to this pre-shot routine, you've got to make sure that you are, staying in the present, that you are connected to a target. And the pre-shot routine is really about getting your mind in the right state where you know of what you're doing. You've maybe taken some practice swings on what a propelling a club feels like. You are now going to take a swing and hit the golf ball and then compare what that swing was when you hit the golf ball compared to the swing that you were attempt that you were, that you put in the, you know, in, in your practice swings and compare the two. Your pre-shot routine should be getting you into a mindset where you are going to analyze and be aware of something that's present, something that's happening right then, not trying to recreate something from your past. And that's how we get better at golf. That's how we start to learn and get better at golf. Um, anyway, so that is it. So thank you for the question, Corey, on how to utilize um, Fred Shoemaker's mindset and how to play better golf and how to uh, learn, you know, between what you should be doing and what you are doing and being aware of the differences in those two and how that fits into a pre-shot routine. I thought it was a great question and really a, a cool one to discuss today. So that's it for today. Thanks for joining me. I am excited about these benchmarks. I hope you are too. I know that if we focus on those parts of our games that we are truly weak at and not where we think we are weak at, then we can get better even in our amateur state. And if we learn golf the way that Fred Shoemaker is teaching us to learn golf, we can get better with the amount of practice that we have at our disposal. I can promise you that. This is Aaron Stewart saying thank you once again. And please remember, better data always means better golf. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Data Access Golf with Aaron Stewart. Check us out online at dataaccessgolf.com. And we'll see you on the next episode.